Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if I have a chance to meet you, my name is uh, Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and it's my honor and privilege to open up most weeks uh, God's Word for us. Uh, if you are in Kingdom Kids Classroom 3, you guys can uh, head back to the door, meet Andrew and Sydney, who are pumped to see you today. Have fun back there. If you're uh, in here and need a coffee refill or anything, feel free to head to the back there and, uh, and grab some. Um, but this morning, I am uh, honored and privileged, like I said, to open up God's Word and continue our, our Advent series that we've entitled Waiting for the King. And really, the goal of this Advent sermon series is to observe this fact, that God's people have always been a waiting people. That God's people from the beginning into now have always been a people who wait. And we've observed in the weeks leading up to this, and we will today, that we are a people who have a hard time waiting, aren't we? I mean, we're an impatient people, and so the concept of waiting is difficult. So, so far, we've looked at Isaiah 40 and talked about waiting in exile as God's people are taken away to a faraway land. Then last week, Pastor Pat led us through Psalm 130. We looked at the idea of waiting while we ache in our sin. And to help us see this theme even further today, we're going to examine uh, the portion of Scripture that Jess just read from the book of Malachi, which, has anybody ever heard a sermon out of Malachi before? Let me, let me clarify. Has anyone heard a sermon on Malachi that's not about tithing? <laughs> right? There's this big section about robbing God. It preaches really well. We're not going to focus on that today. You can rest easy. Uh, but Malachi is a pretty crazy book. I mean, it's the last book in the Old Testament, which makes it a pretty significant point in the history of God's people. I mean, we're going to set the context in a moment. In fact, our whole first point is going to be the context of Malachi just to help us step into this situation. But after this prophecy from Malachi... What's happening is that God is silent, and he's silent for a really long time. There's no more prophets coming from the people of Israel. There is this just eerie silence from the God who has chosen them, who has called them his own, and who now seemingly has left them. Now, let's do an exercise real quick. Seriously, if you have a Bible or you have your phone or anything in front of you, I mean, Malachi right here, you flip the page or you scroll down, what comes right after it? Matthew, New Testament, right? In this mere flip of the page, you know how many years go by? 400. Now, that's a lot of years. We have a hard time grasping that. The United States of America is 243 years old. Put that in perspective for you. 400 years where God is no longer speaking through his prophets to his people. I mean, that's a long time. That is generations upon generations upon generations. That is a long period of silence, and this was jarring for the people of Israel because God was a God who had graciously and constantly always revealed himself to his people. We just sang about it in the last song, whether it be at Mount Sinai where God gives his people the law, whether it go all the way back to Abraham when he calls Abraham out of his pagan religion to be this great nation where his inheritance will be blessed and that all the families of the earth will be blessed because of his offspring. Whether it be the prophets, whether it be the wisdom literature, see, God has been speaking over and over again to his people, 
but now all of a sudden he's gone and he's silent. Now, if we think about our current situation today, we are a people who don't really know what to do with silence. I mean, we're surrounded by noise at all times in our lives, aren't we? I mean, there's a constant buzz and a hum and just noise surrounding us if your life looks anything like mine. I mean, we live in a world where you are connected at the tip of your fingers to everything going on around you with a bright, lit-up screen that can play you noise immediately, and you can have that the first moment you wake up in the morning, can't you? I mean, you can go, how many moments of sustained periods of silence do you have in your week? See, we're really uncomfortable with silence. And in fact, culture's beginning to pick up on this, and there's all sorts of things that have popped up in our world. So do you know that you can go on something called a digital detox retreat? These are actually very popular. You go and you forcibly hand your devices to someone who takes them away from you for a whole weekend while you go out and actually enjoy something other than being plugged in at all times. There are these little centers popping up all around the world, especially in big cities in the inner parts of those cities called mindfulness centers. Or same idea, you check your phone in at the front door and then you go and you do something called mindfulness. I don't know what exactly that is, but it means not scrolling on Twitter, checking Instagram, right? It's something different than the constant noise and buzz that we always are, are running in in this current cultural moment. And the scary reality of those two things, by the way, is that we literally have to check our phones in somewhere. Like, we need help from the outside to cut us off from the noise. See, we struggle with silence in general. And what that means, as we consider our discipleship of Jesus, is that we're going to struggle even more so when we consider this idea of God's silence, aren't we? I mean, God's silence makes us ponder those difficult things in life. God's absence makes us ask those hard questions that we might not want to ask when we're just scrolling through our social media feed. You see, God's silence forces us to be silent, and we're generally uncomfortable with that. So here's the good news. God gives Israel a word. He gives them Malachi, who communicates some things that they need to know in preparation before these 400 years of silence. And I think that we, as a people who struggle with silence, have a great deal to learn from this book today. So as we study these passages in chapter 3 and chapter 4, here's our main idea this morning. When God feels silent, we must remember his character, his word, and his first coming as we await his return. When God feels silent, we must remember his character, his word, and his first coming as we await his return. And to see that, we're going to look at the idea of waiting through three different points in Malachi. Waiting in God's silence, first and foremost. Then waiting in God's witness. And lastly, waiting in God's return. But before we jump into that, let's pause and let's take a silent moment. And then let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're a people this morning who are in desperate need of you. We're in desperate need of a reminder from you. We're in need of hearing from you afresh today. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this book. And, Lord, we thank you that it was given to us for our benefit, that we might see and behold and understand the good news of the gospel, that we might apply it to our lives. And in this particular Christmas season, as we stand and as we wait between Christ, your first coming and your promised second coming, would you help us to be a people who wait well? Help us to be a people who wait 
with patience that develops godliness and perseverance in us. We pray today as we acknowledge the hard moments of our lives where you feel absent, where you feel silent, where you feel distant. Help remind us that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness in our world today. So may you speak through your word, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand and to respond. We pray that we would leave this time stirred up to a greater worship of our Savior who has come and is coming again. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by talking about waiting and God's silence. And I really want to set the context a little bit wider here in the book of Malachi, since I'm guessing we're fairly unfamiliar with it, and I think it's significant for this Advent season. So as we step into Malachi, this message is delivered sometime around 450 B.C. So 450 B.C. is the time frame we're looking at here. And by this time, the people of Israel, they had returned from exile. They had returned from being taken captive in Babylon, and it's been about a hundred years since the Edict of Cyrus, which allowed the people of Israel to go home to Jerusalem. However, when the Israelites returned home, things just weren't quite the same. It's almost as if too much has happened for us just to return home and continue our normal lives as Israelites here in Jerusalem. And the clearest reality of this is surrounding the temple. So the temple was destroyed when the Babylonians came in, and when they get back to Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild it. They begin to take the ashes and the rubble, and they're going to rebuild this center of worship for God's people. But the problem is, as they begin to build it, it's just so lackluster. I mean, Solomon's temple was arrayed in all of its glory, but yet this temple was kind of this little stone building. I mean, literally in the book of Ezra, if you read there, it says that the older people who had seen the first temple who had come back now out of exile, they wept with a loud voice as they looked at what was being built. I mean, it was an anticlimactic reopening, to say the least. And this new temple really reflected the spiritual state of Israel. They seemed to be wearied. They seemed to be worn down in their religious devotion to the Lord. They're in a place of spiritual stagnancy and emptiness before God. I mean, it's been a roller coaster ride for them. I mean, they've sinned, they've been brought to exile, they've repented, they've been restored. That little cycle has been repeated over and over again in the life of the people of Israel, and finally they just seem like they're done. They're worn down, they've had enough, and so they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They begin to let their dissatisfaction known to their God. And it's in the midst of this dissatisfaction, this grumbling, this spiritual stagnancy, that Malachi enters the scene. In the book of Malachi, it's meant to prepare the people of Israel, this is what you need to know before I leave the scene for a little while. I'm giving you a final word of how you ought to live in a season where I'm no longer speaking to you through the prophets. And as I've mentioned, I think this is massively instructive for us. Because listen, brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives where it feels like our situation is just like theirs. There are inevitably going to be seasons where God will feel absent, where he will feel silent, where he will feel hidden and far away from us in our experience. If you have not felt this yet, you will feel it. There are times where there are things we just cannot explain where God just feels so missing from it. I mean, there's going to be times where prayers that we have prayed for years, prayers that seem to fit within God's will, 
prayers that we have prayed over and over again simply are not answered, and we begin to wonder, does God really care about me? Is he really hearing me when I pray? Why won't you move in this way? See, there's going to be times where something horrible happens in our world. Another mass shooting takes place. A natural disaster comes, and we begin to wonder, why would God allow this? Where is God in the midst of this? Why won't he stop this? There's going to be times where we feel that wickedness and evil and injustice is just rampant. It's just taking over all things, and it's going unchecked, and we look at God and we say, God, aren't you in control? Why is this happening? We watch someone that we love suffer for no apparent reason and we wonder, God, why would you allow this to continue? Why won't you bring this healing? Right, a friendship goes south, family relationships are fractured and we are devastated and that ache just won't quite go away, will it? And we ask, God, why won't you bring peace to my restlessness? And see, that's real life, isn't it? Those questions make you uncomfortable. Maybe it's because it's tapping into the questions we all have deep in our soul. That's real life. But in the face of this, there's two ways we can respond. This is where Malachi is helpful. In the face of those questions, in the face of sensing God's silence, sensing his absence, feeling his distance, there's two ways we can respond. And the first is we can respond just like the people of Israel did in Malachi. And spoiler alert, this is not the way we're supposed to respond, okay? But we need to walk back through Malachi and see the people were already responding inappropriately even before God is left. So here's the first thing that they do. In the face of all this spiritual emptiness, they begin to doubt God's love and they begin to doubt his justice. The book almost opens with this cry. Malachi 1-2, the Lord says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved? You see, the people are not feeling his presence. They're feeling his distance, and they fire back, God, you said you love us, but how? We don't feel it. Have you really loved us? We're having a hard time believing this is true. Then quickly, it shifts from his love to his rule and his reign. God, I don't feel your love, and also, look at what's happening around us. Are you sure you're just? Right, they actually ask, point blank in chapter 2, where is the God of justice? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he seems to delight in them. Isn't that backwards, God? So they begin to doubt his love and his justice. Secondly, they just begin to go through the motions of worship in some half-hearted, disingenuous way. You see, their offerings became worthless. Their priests were leading them to offer polluted sacrifices. They had fallen into the trap that is warned about over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that these people... They honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. They were just showing up because they were supposed to be there. There was no genuine worship flowing out of them. And then thirdly, they began to view obedience as optional. They viewed obedience as optional. The Lord indicts his people throughout Malachi for not honoring the covenant of marriage. They were marrying non-Israelites. They were marrying outside the covenant. And then those who were married, they were committing affairs and adultery. He also accuses them, this is maybe the, the sermon you've heard from Malachi, of robbing God, of taking tithes from him, holding back what rightly belongs to him and spending it on themselves. By the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that sex and money are the two pressure points here, are they? You see, sex and money, good gifts from God, when disconnected from his purposes, they promise a kind of instant gratification, 
That might feel good in the moment, but then the moments afterwards linger, don't they? You see sex and money, they were viewing obedience as optional. They think, we'll just get a little pleasure here, a little extra spending here, and we'll feel better. And the Lord looks at them and says, that is wicked and it is sinful. And then lastly, they begin to view serving and loving God as simply being in vain. They view it all as being in vain. Malachi 3, 14. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge? They get to the point where they say, this just isn't worth it. We're feeling the weight of all that I just worked through, and this all seems pretty pointless. We're not getting anything out of this. In fact, let's bail. Let's just go on to something else. You see, that's how the Israelites were living in the face of the silence from God. And I think those temptations are near and dear to us as well. When we find ourselves in those struggle with, God, why are you not answering this? Where are you? I don't feel your presence. We can very quickly move to one of those places. And maybe you can even see those this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, that is exactly where I am. If so, praise God he's brought that to you. But those responses will not get us what we're really looking for. Those responses are actually causing us to run towards something that will never satisfy. It's causing us to turn away from the only hope that we actually have in the midst of the ache and run towards things that are only going to magnify it and increase it as we go. So where do you see yourself there? I think we ought to start in that place. But secondly, don't forget, there's another way. You see, there's two ways to respond to that. The first is the way of Israel. But the second is to exercise simply what the Bible calls faith. The second is to have a belief in faith. But here's the thing about faith in the Bible. It's not mere wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale, pie in the sky, everything's just going to be okay at all times. It's not this feeling of something inside of you like, well, I just feel like God's real and everything's going to be okay. That's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith, first and foremost, is raw and honest about these things. It doesn't mean we just sit back and disengage those hard questions. Instead, the first step of faith is crying out to God with them. The first step in faith is being honest. God, this is what I feel, and I want to wrestle with this with you, not turning away from you. I mean, if those questions I asked earlier make you feel uncomfortable, read the book of Psalms sometime. I mean, David is brutally honest about his feelings. Psalm 28, for example, he says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go to the pit. I feel like you're deaf. I feel like you're silent. Help me. Job, maybe the best example of this in the scriptures in 30, says this in verse 20. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. That's an honest prayer of a man who's trying to exercise faith. You see, not to cry out is an act of unbelief. But to cry out is an act of biblical faith. Now that does not mean all of our questions are immediately going to be answered. It doesn't mean our hard circumstances are going to automatically be resolved. It doesn't mean our frustrations are just going to wither away. But it is similar to this. It's similar to the inevitable phase in parenting that maybe some of you are in, where your child asks why over and over again. Anybody in the why phase right now? Yeah, there we go. This is just for you guys, okay? 
I mean, you know the phase I'm talking about, right? You go through the normal stages of your day that you've done the entirety of their lifetime, and then what do they start doing? Well, why do we have to eat this, right? Why are we going to this place? Do I really have to go to school? Why? Right? We ask why over and over and over again. And eventually, you as parents, right, you get to that breaking point where you have to realize that your child, even if you give the best rationale for why they must eat the broccoli on the table, is not going to get it. And what do you say to them? Son, daughter, I need you to trust me. This is for your best. You might not understand why, but I need you to eat that broccoli, right? I need you to put your pants on. I need you to go to school. And at the end of the day, you're looking at them just saying, trust me, right? I'm your parent. I love you. I'm trying to do what's best for you. Your child might not understand why, but they're going to keep asking. Well, if we as imperfect human parents do that, how much more does our perfect Heavenly Father invite us to the same thing? We are free to ask why. We are free to wrestle. We are free to ask those hard questions. And our Heavenly Father sometimes looks at us and he says, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me. You might not see why this is good for you, but I promise you it is. Israel, you might not see how 400 years of silence is going to be for your best, but I promise you it is. And we have a Heavenly Father who looks at our circumstances and he says the very same thing. Do you trust me? You might not understand it, but do you trust me? See, that's the kind of hope that Hebrews defines for us. Hebrews 11.1, then we're going to get into Malachi. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But you ought to ask the question, how in the world can you have assurance of something that you're merely hoping in? How in the world can you have conviction in something that you've never seen with your own eyes? Well, I think Malachi answers that for us. You see, God within this book gives us witnesses. He gives us reminders. In fact, that word remind is critical in Malachi. He gives us little drops along the way that are supposed to be reasons to remember that we can trust him, that we can have an assurance, that we can have conviction even if we don't see it right in front of us. So let's look at those four things. This is waiting in God's witness. Let me give you this up top. Though God may seem silent, it does not mean he's absent. Though God may seem silent, it does not mean he is absent. And that's exactly what he reminds them throughout this. He begins, number one, with witness number one, of his own character and nature. In chapter three, verse six, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He says, I, the Lord, I do not change. You see, Israel's looking around at all these other pagan nations and their gods constantly changing. You had to make sure that they woke up on the right side of the bed, that you offered the right sacrifice, otherwise you could just be smited off the face of the earth. That was how the pagans viewed their gods. And God, the God of Israel, the real God over all of the gods, shows up and says, no, 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 I'm not like them. I do not change. This is what theologians call the immutability of God. Everything around us in this world is changing. God does not change. And that's good news, by the way, because notice he says, I do not change, therefore, Israel, you're not consumed. You know why? I've made a promise to you. And because I'm a God who does not change, guess what I do with my promises? I keep them. My word is sure. My word is true. I will remain the same whether your experience of me feels that way or not. I do not change. 
Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is a God who does not change, which leads us to the second point in Malachi, which is the second witness, his word. God has given us his word. Near the end of the book, it's coming to an end, chapter 4, verse 4. His final words, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He's saying, remember my law. Remember the words I have spoken to you. Remember the scriptures that you have access to that were delivered so mightily at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, in a massive, glorious way. Remember my word. See, I have, Israel, spoken to you, and I continue to do so. I have revealed myself to you, and you still have access to me, even if I feel far away. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we just want something more, don't we? We want something more grand in our experience with God that will help clear up our questions and satisfy our longings. But here's the thing, that's not actually what's going to help us. Instead, there's something beautiful in the still, small voice of our Lord speaking to us through his word that is meant to sustain us. Peter reminds us of this reality in 2 Peter. Peter, the great apostle that we all love because he's a massive screw-up over and over again, but yet gets God's grace, right? We love Peter. He says this in 2 Peter. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. And he says this, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's looking at these scattered readers, including us, and saying, I know you want a big experience with God. Guess what? I had that experience. I mean, we walked with Jesus for three years, and then he goes on to talk about the transfiguration, where Jesus shows up in all of his glory on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, and they don't know what to do with it. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from heaven. Peter, here's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. Peter says, listen, we've had the experience. We've literally had the mountaintop experience, right? I've been up there. I've seen Jesus in his glory. God has spoken through the clouds. And listen to what he says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. See what Peter does there. He says, listen, you want the experience. You want the grand vision from heaven. Guess what? You have a word more fully confirmed. You have something even better than that. It's the book you're holding or the book you're accessing on the electronic device in front of you. Peter says, that thing, that's more sure. That's more steady. Because guess what? None of that came from man. That was from the Holy Spirit who wrote and inspired these words that are for your benefit. As I've heard a pastor once say, many of us are looking for a word from God while it sits on our shelves collecting dust. Or maybe consider Kevin DeYoung. He says, you do not need another special revelation from God outside the Bible. You can listen to the voice of God every day. Christ still speaks because the Spirit has already spoken. If you want to hear from God, go to the book that records only what he has said. Immerse yourself in the word of God. You will not find anything more sure. You see, God has said, remember my character and nature, remember my word, and then thirdly, remember God's coming. 
Remember God's coming. Go back to chapter 3 in Malachi. Before this period of silence, he tells them this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Go over to chapter 4, verse 5. He fills it in more. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, God promises, I will end my silence. This absence that you feel, this lack of communication for me, it's not forever. No, I'm sending someone. A messenger is coming who will clear the way. Look for the messenger. Look for him. He will come like Elijah. Not as some kind of reincarnation, in case people get weird with this. Someone who comes like Elijah. Someone who will come proclaiming the same message, who will look the same in appearance. He will powerfully declare the word of God, even when it might be unpopular. Even when it might cost him his life. He will turn Israel back to what they need to hear. And of course, this messenger is John the Baptist in the New Testament. He looks an awful lot like Elijah, probably someone you wouldn't associate with. Got weird like ropes and camel skin, he's eating milk. I mean, it's, it's a weird situation. Just read it there in Matthew 3. But he comes and he proclaims the kingdom of God is here. Now feel the weight of that for a moment. Remember, we turn the page, 400 years goes by. Silence from God. Then all of a sudden, this crazy dude out in the wilderness shows up and he says, guess what? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. All that you've been waiting for, all that silence that's been building up and piling upon each other, it's over. The kingdom of God is here. God's silence is ended. He has come, and he is coming with a message of repentance and faith. John the Baptist comes and he says, turn from your sin and run to the Savior. Repent and believe the good news. He even comes with a baptism to symbolize this, a reminder that we need cleansing and purifying and forgiveness. But guess what? It's available to you. You can repent and believe. But the reason why John gets persecuted, eventually beheaded, the reason why people don't appreciate the message that he's giving is that they came and they expected him to overthrow the earthly governmental systems as they know it. They expect him to come and say, guess what, the kingdom's here, now you are freed from Roman oppression. I am now speaking to you again, so guess what, all these enemies that have seemingly got a foothold, they're done with. We're going to crush them once and for all. But John doesn't come like that. He doesn't come to say, God's here and he's overthrowing the Romans. He comes and he says, God's here and he wants to overthrow your heart. God's here and before I deal with the people out here, I need to deal with you. Right? We are people who are prone to sin. We are people who struggle by turning to other things besides God. And John the Baptist graciously and wildly comes on the scene. And he says, no, no, don't worry about them. Don't worry about those governments. Worry about you. What's going on in your heart? Your own heart and your own worship needs to be subverted and upended before I deal with the rest of the world. Through John the Baptist, God is calling a new people to himself. And the only way in is to realize you don't have it all together. The only way to get in on the kingdom is to realize that you need desperate and divine help. The only way you can get in on what he's saying is to plead that I can't do anything. In fact, I'm an enemy of this and I need forgiveness. And for those that recognize it, there's hope. Now Malachi looks forward to that day. We 
get to look back to that day. And that's significant for this conversation. Because, see, we are, in one sense, the same as Malachi, but in another sense, in a very different place. You see, we can't make the same accusations that the people of Israel and Malachi did, at least not in an ultimate sense. Because here's why. Christmas, what we're celebrating in this season, it's a reminder that God has already come. Christmas reminds us that we can't just look at God and say, you don't care. Christmas reminds us that we can't look at God and say, ah, you're silent, you're uninvolved. Because Christmas tells us that God cared so much that he came and got involved himself. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the only way you know who the playwright is if you're reading the play is if the author writes himself into the story. And brothers and sisters, that's precisely what God has done. See, we can look at God and we can say, I feel your absence. Where are you? You feel distant to me. And the Christmas story says, no, no, no. Remember, I wrote myself into the play. Remember, I have already come. I have already acted in this way. And here's the thing. He's not just willing to come. He's not merely born in a manger in Bethlehem, which is good news. But he comes and he lives a perfect life that you and I could not live. And then the height of his sacrificial love to us, he dies a brutal, sacrificial death in our place. You want to know how much God cares? He shed his own blood for you. We might not have all the answers in the moment. We might struggle with the questions. But Christmas reminds us, look backwards. Don't forget, I've already come. Don't forget, I've already brought healing and redemption. Don't forget, I care. I've spoken to you. I've already come. What that means is biblical faith helps us realize that all of our why questions are ultimately answered in a who. All of our questions of why, all of our struggles, all of our things that we go through in this life are answered definitively by a who. And that who is Jesus. And Jesus has already come and he's promised to go again, come again. So he gives us his word. He gave us his character and nature, a reminder of that. He already has come, and then lastly, quickly, he also gives us one another. He gives us God's people. The very last verse in the Old Testament, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. See, that heart that is turning is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus comes and he shakes up what's going on in our hearts and our lives, and we all of a sudden have eyes to see, we repent of our sin, we cry out in faith, He turns our hearts, first and foremost, back to him, but then secondly, to one another. See, he gives us brothers and sisters in Christ in the household of God. And listen, every time we forgive an offense, every time we speak the truth in love to one another, every time we offer grace where we could demand payment or vengeance, every time we overlook an offense, not making it a bigger deal than it has to be, we're showcasing the kingdom of God to one another. We're showcasing that you might feel like God is absent, you might feel like God is silent, but I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you of that good news that reconciles us to one another. So God says, remember my character and nature. Remember my word. Remember that I've already come and look around. You've been put into a family, a family of people who when you might not be feeling it can say, I'll pick up the slack for you. I'll put my arm around you. I'll remind you of what is true. Fleming Rutledge summarizes this tension that we just described in this way. She says, in spite of God's apparent hiddenness, the memory of what God has done in the past 
continues to activate hope for what he'll do in the future. That's a loaded sentence. Let me give you that again. The memory of what God has done in the past continues to activate hope for what he'll do in the future. This is the movement of the Advent season. The God who hides himself is still the God of the covenant. He is absent and present at the very same time. He may hide himself, but it can never be forgotten that he was once present in power and that he will be again. That is Advent, the time between. So as we shift our attention from the fact he's already come, let's conclude by looking at waiting and God's return because he has promised to come in power again. And when he returns, it will not be a baby in a manger. Instead, it will be the conquering king of all kings who Revelation says is riding in on a horse to judge the living and the dead. See, he comes with a little bit different of an intensity this time around. And look at the language that is used to describe that. Back to chapter 3 again. It says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You see, when it says the Lord of hosts is coming, this is the depiction of God leading the angelic army back to earth. Now, I know around Christmas time, we like to think of angels as these cute little decorations that we put around the table, right? Maybe up on top of the tree. If you encounter an angel in the scriptures and you're still alive, you're grateful. Angels were terrifying. Angels were scary. They were angelic warriors who show up on the scene. And so Malachi says, hey, the Lord of hosts, the commander-in-chief of that military army is coming. And he says, who can stand? Who can endure? Well, the answer is nobody. Nobody can stand. Nobody can endure unless God intervenes in a supernatural way. And that's what he does. See, the imagery gets more intense. Malachi describes God as coming with fire. This is an appropriate picture. God is called a consuming fire throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. In fact, his presence is often signified by fire. You ever thought about that? I mean, he shows up in the burning bush. Right? He leads his people through the wilderness by pillar, pillar cloud by day, by fire by night. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. Who shows up there with them? God himself in the fire. You see, this fire is close to God's presence. And here's the thing. This fire will do one of two things. And this isn't real Christmassy, but stay with me. Okay? This fire is either going to destroy you or it's going to refine you. This fire either destroys or it will refine. Let's start with the bad news, that he will come with judgment for the wicked. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. When the Lord comes, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And here's the real phrase that summarizes all of them. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And do not fear me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. See, the common thread here is for those who do not fear the Lord, for those who reject his gracious invitation, for those who are workers of evil and wickedness, there is a day of judgment coming. That day of judgment is coming. God is coming as a fire. 
for those who do not see their need for grace and mercy, that's precisely what will happen. But let us not forget, this is exactly what John the Baptist came proclaiming. John the Baptist came and he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But turn back to God. Turn back to God. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel is here. See, God has graciously extended an invitation to wicked people who are in need of grace and mercy like you and me. And he says, repent. Turn away from your sin. Run back to your Savior. Because for those who do, look at the hope that is built up in this passage. See, for God's people, those who have fundamentally been changed, this fire will not destroy them. It will purify them. It will refine them. Look at the second half of chapter 3, verse 2. He said, for he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. He gives two images here. He gives the idea of a fuller's soap. That's soap you would use to scrub out stains in a garment. And as your mom might have said when you were cleaning the house, right, it takes a little elbow grease to get there. Right, you would take this soap and you would scrub it as hard as you can. You would get the stains out of the garment. And the Lord says, behold, I come and my grace and my mercy is like the fuller soap. My blood that was shed is so that your stains, your sin might be washed white as snow. For those who repent and believe, they're washed, they're purified. And then he gives this incredibly powerful imagery of a refining fire. It pictures God sitting before the fire as a silversmith, putting his instruments into the fire. But notice, the instruments are not destroyed. The instruments are not burned up. The silversmith's job was to take that silver, take that instrument, put it in the fire until all the impurities are wiped away. Until all the dross, all of the rust, all of the stuff that had built up on the metal was burned off. And here's the most powerful picture I could give you this morning. You know how they knew when the job was done? If you asked a silversmith, how do you know when the job is done? He would answer, I keep doing it until I see my own reflection in the instrument. And brothers and sisters, that is the kind of fire God brings for his people. God puts us through a refining fire. And when he comes as fire, he burns away all the impurities. All the dross falls away. Everything that is wrong on it is gone. And he looks at us and he sees himself in the reflection. That's the kind of hope that we have as God's people waiting for that refining fire. There's one last beautiful phrase to consider in chapter 4, verse 2. Close with this. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. See, this is the advent we await, where the sun of righteousness shall rise. And for those who live in darkness, that's good news, isn't it? See, for those who live in darkness, light is coming. The sun of righteousness is going to rise. And he will rise with healing in his wings. The rays of the sun will bring healing to those who are facing sickness. And then the calves, they shall leap from the stalls. You ever seen the beginning of a horse race? They're in bondage for that brief moment, and then boom, they go. That's the picture here. 
you will receive such joyous news and salvation that those who were in bondage, they will run free. And then you will tread on the wicked like ashes under your feet. For those who feel the sting of death, of sin and evil, those who feel defeated, there's a victory coming. Because the king who has come and has promised to come again is a crucified yet resurrected king who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. See, the message of Christmas is this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. This God is the same God who promises at the end of his ministry in Matthew that after all that he's just done, gives his marching orders, he says, go into all nations, make disciples of them, baptize them, but don't forget the ending. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christmas reminds us God has come. Advent tells us that God is coming again. And as we live between those events, remember God is with us to the very end of the age. And he's a God we can trust in the midst of the perceived silence and the uncertainties. Let's pray.